0: Hello, and welcome to the sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Versailles, Missouri. It is our hope that the following message will help you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. For more teachings, please visit our sermon page at fbcversailles.com. Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 26. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? So he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of that house, the teacher says, where is my guest room that I may eat Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening came, he arrived with the twelve, and while they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and say to him, one by one, Surely not I... And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and he gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup after giving thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. He said to them, This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's pray. Almighty God, we know that your Son, Jesus, was led by the Spirit, to be tempted by Satan. And we need your help because we are regularly assaulted by temptations just as Judas was. Please come quickly because you know our weaknesses and let us find you mighty to save. Through Jesus Christ, amen. Research has proven that smells have a stronger link to memories and emotion than any of our other senses. Freshly cut grass, popcorn, burnt marshmallows, right? (laughs) Coffee in the morning, pine trees, summer rain, campfire, sharpened pencils. Every time I smell a pencil being sharpened, I'm taken back to the third grade. That smell Cinnamon, chlorine, the first snowfall, a certain perfume or cologne, fried chicken, Mm -hmm. just-washed laundry hanging on the clothesline, crunchy fall leaves, chocolate chip cookies, (laughs) old books, and of course, hot apple pie. Amen. Amen, that's right. Each of us have certain scents that whenever we smell them, these waves of memory just crash over us. There are still some smells that take me back decades, and probably you too. When the scent hits our nose, they race back to a part of our brain that is right next to and connected with the areas in our brain that are in charge of memory and emotion. And so this explains why certain smells trigger very strong emotions causing us to remember things that we hadn't thought about in years. And in our text for today, from that point forward, every time the disciples smelled bread and wine, they would be transported back in time to this very special night that they spent with Jesus. It was something that they would never forget. Every day when they would walk by the bakery or if their wife was making bread in their homes, they'd be reminded of Jesus. They would be reminded of that special supper that they had with him in Jerusalem in the upper room that symbolized his death. This means that when we take the Lord's Supper, which we will in a few moments, we'll take the Lord's Supper together, it's supposed to take us back as well. It's intended to show us in a very visual, a very symbolic way who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. It should seize all of our senses, our hearing, our sight, our touch, taste, and smell. Because that's what's happening here at the Lord's Supper, the last supper that Jesus is having And it's designed to evoke that kind of memory and emotion that comes along with what was happening with Christ. Our text this morning splits very nicely into three sections. Preparation for the Passover, Prediction of Betrayal, and the Pronouncement of the Lord's Supper. And we'll take a look at each one of these individually. First, the Preparation for the Passover. As our passage begins we are told that it was time for the Passover. And the Passover was an annual meal that the Israelites ate to commemorate one of the most important events in their history. According to the book of Exodus, Pharaoh was threatened by the ancient Israelites. They were multiplying and there was becoming many, many, many more of them. And he did some quick math and realized if we don't get a handle on this, they're going to take over. And so Exodus chapter 1, verse 11 tells us that he assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. And after a while of that, after being enslaved in Egypt, God sends Moses to Pharaoh, telling him to release the Israelites. And uh, if you've seen the Charlton Heston version of the Ten Commandments, you'll remember the Let my people... Yeah, you got it. You know what I'm talking about. But this didn't sit very well with Pharaoh. In fact, Pharaoh didn't like it at all. So he made it even harder on the people than it already was. And after that, God sends Moses back to Pharaoh and tells Pharaoh that there are going to be plagues coming. Blood, frogs, gnats, flies, death of the livestock, hail that had lightning in it. Locust, darkness. Those were the first nine plagues. The first nine. And during the first nine plagues, Pharaoh continued to tighten his grip on the Israelites. After each plague, he said, no, his heart was hardened even more. But then there was a tenth plague. And the tenth plague broke Pharaoh. And the tenth plague caused him to, to loosen his grip. And it was a plague that was going to fall on everyone. The Israelites weren't going to be safe from the tenth plague just because they were Israelites. In each and every home, the tenth plague was that the firstborn would die. The only way to escape this divine judgment was to put your faith in God's sacrificial solution. God instructed those who were faithful to Him to slay a spotless lamb Without blemish, perfect, and then to smear the blood of that lamb across the top of the door and down the door posts. And this physical act was a symbol of their spiritual faith in God's protection. In every home that night, there would either be a dead child or a dead lamb. A dead child or a dead lamb. The angel of death was coming. And God's wrath would either fall on the family or it would fall on the substitute. You were saved only by faith in that substitutionary sacrifice. Being covered by the blood of the lamb was the sign for the angel of death to pass over that home. And every year the Passover meal celebrated this event of deliverance in the history of Israel. Since they were near Jerusalem, and that's where you were supposed to celebrate the Passover, uh, the disciples asked, where should we go and prepare it? Where do you want us to go and prepare this meal? And then something very similar to what happened just prior to the triumphal entry back in chapter 11 happens again. Jesus gives six very specific instructions about what they should do and what would take place. You'll remember back at the triumphal entry, he sends two of his disciples in to catch, or not catch, but to retrieve a colt, a donkey that he can ride in on. He tells them the exact spot, the exact location. Here's what the guy is going to ask you. Here's what you need to say to him. And you notice there's six instructions here. First, he sends two disciples. Luke tells us that it was Peter and John. Second, they were going to meet a man carrying a jar of water. And you're probably thinking to yourself, well, how on, earth, how on earth are they going to know which man it is? A man carrying a jar of water, isn't that... I mean, like that's what they all do. They all have to fetch water, right? But the, the, the reason that this man would have stuck out like a sore thumb is because normally women carried jars of water. If a man was going to retrieve water, he had kind of like an animal skin bladder that he would use, and women would use jars. And so a man carrying a jar of water would have been very easy for them to spot. So, we have the two disciples looking for this man carrying the water, and then they were supposed to follow that man to a specific house. Now, church tradition says that it was the house of John Mark. It was his home, and that John Mark's father was the owner of the house. But there's no way to know this for sure, this side of heaven. They speculate this in part because in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, it says, As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. And this happened in Jerusalem. So they're saying maybe this was the house of John Mark. But again, we, we don't know for sure. But it's kind of fun to think about it sometimes, you know. So they go to this house, the specific house, and they were supposed to go to the owner of the house and say the teacher wants to know where my guest room is where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. Apparently, that was the code phrase to the owner of the house, something that probably Jesus and he had worked out ahead of time. And then fifth, the owner was going to show them a large room that was furnished and ready and sixth, they were to make the preparations for the group there. Verse 26 says, the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it just as they had told him. and they prepared the passover it's kind of anticlimactic for jesus telling them that all these things were going to happen and then they do it exactly like jesus you know it's, it's just exactly jesus knew what was going on he gave them directions and they followed them to the t they would have had to set the table with the unleavened bread they would have had the dish of bitter herbs they would have had a, a sauce that would have consisted of uh, dried fruit, um, spices, and wine vinegar. They called it sop, and they mixed it together. It was kind of sweet. And then there would be a lamb that would need to be prepared and roasted, the symbol that most clearly identified their deliverance from Israel because of the blood that saved their lives. Every aspect of the meal was meant to remind them of all that God had done. Even that fruity... Um, sweet sop. It was kind of a brown color and it reminded them of the mortar from the bricks that they were making. Every aspect of it reminded them about something about what God had done delivering them from Egypt. Even, even with all of these preparations, they were still unaware that there was an even greater Passover that was unfolding before them. Jesus was preparing himself to be sacrificed as the Passover lamb. When he saw Jesus, John the Baptist proclaimed, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, taught believers saying that Christ is our Passover Lamb who has been sacrificed. Jesus knew the prophecies about his life. And Jesus was fulfilling the prophecies about his life in his sacrifice that he was about to make. In fact, Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 through 20 as he's reflecting back on these events, I believe. For you know that you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. And all of this was planned before the foundation of the world. None of this was a surprise to Jesus. He knew exactly what was happening, and he was there to fulfill the Passover, the symbolic nature of the Passover, he was going to fulfill it in his life and in his death. In the evening, after everything was prepared, when they were, after they had finished preparing for the Passover, we have a prediction of betrayal. While they were eating at the table, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. These words bring to mind Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my friend in whom I trusted, one who I ate my bread, the one who ate my bread has raised his heel against me. Eating together is a, was and is still a significant symbol of friendship. It was a symbol of commitment and a, one of trust. Um, and it was one of fellowship. Kind of sounds like you're Baptist, Right? You don't let anybody just know about what your, uh, what your uh, recipe is or, you know, eat your special whatever, right? But eating with someone was one of the most meaningful indications of our friendship and trust. To betray someone with whom you had eaten, that would be disgraceful and treacherous. All of them, all of the disciples, eventually will betray Jesus in one way or another. Many of them just scatter after he is arrested but Judas, Judas is different. He seems to have ice water running through his veins. And somehow, some way, he's able to hide that from all of the other disciples. Everybody else at the table, nobody knew what Jesus, or what Judas was going to be up to except for Jesus. Jesus was the only one that knew. And so he made this prediction. One of you will betray me. Jesus knew what was going to happen. He could see into the heart of Judas. And the real mystery is, how did the other disciples miss it? How could they not see? How could they not have any suspicions about Judas at all? Jesus said, One of you will betray me. And it must have shocked all of them to their core. Because do you see what happened next? The very next thing, One of you will betray me, the one eating with me. And it says, They began to become distressed and say to one another, or to say to him one by one, Surely not I. It's not me, is it, Jesus? It's not me. Each one of them felt the heat of guilt wash over them when Jesus said, One of you will betray me. Each one of them had grief and searched their souls. And that tells us something. It tells us that each one of them believed that they were capable... Of betraying Jesus but they couldn't imagine that it would be them each disciple sorrowfully searched for confirmation from Jesus it's not me is it surely not I but Jesus doesn't reveal who the betrayer will be now let me pause here for just a moment the question that most of us ask when we read the Bible is where do I fit into the text who am I You know, we want to identify with one of the characters of the story, right? And most of the time we get, and it's a good question to ask, by the way, but most of the time we get the answer wrong. We usually see ourselves as the heroes of the story, but in this text, we're Judas. Now, before you start throwing hymnals and Bibles at me, just hang with me for a minute, okay? We're Judas. We, too, have betrayed Jesus. Instead of running to Jesus, we, like Judas, recoil away from him. We scatter away from Jesus like the other disciples. Look at your life for a moment and ask, have you betrayed Jesus in your life? Do you fail to do what he's called you to do? And I think if we answer honestly, we'll all answer yes. We all have. We've all betrayed our master. And there's two kinds of betrayers in this table or at this table with Jesus. And that will come and and that will come today as we take the Lord's Supper. Two kinds of betrayers that come. There are betrayers like Peter, and we'll read his story next week about how he denies Jesus 3 times, and Jesus tells him ahead of time, he, when after all this is over and they go out to the Mount of Olives, he's going to say Hey, Peter, by the way, you're going to betray me three times. And Peter's going to go, no, no, I would never do that, never. But you know exactly what happens next. Peter betrays Jesus three times, exactly as Jesus told him. Peter betrays Jesus. He cusses and swears an oath. I don't know this man that you're talking about. That's in verse 71 of chapter 14 here in Mark's gospel. And then there are betray- so there's betrayers like Peter. And then there's betrayers like Judas, who for the right price will sell out the king of kings. What's the difference between their betrayals? Not much, really. Each one in their own unique way has betrayed Jesus. There is a difference, though, in their response when they recognize their betrayal. Judas runs away from Jesus, but Peter runs to Jesus. And that makes all the difference. What kind are you today? You see, Jesus loves us even though we betray him. Judas ate dinner with Jesus. Judas had his feet washed by Jesus. And from the description here, it looks like Judas was sitting in the seat of honor at the Passover meal. Jesus showed incredible patience. And love, even to the one who would betray him. He does that to each one of us who betray him as well, giving us every opportunity to return and to repent. If we don't realize, like the disciples, that we are capable of betraying Jesus, then we're deceiving ourselves. Sadly, there are many people who attend church week after week, month after month, and year after year that don't even recognize that they're sinners and that they're lost. And then there are plenty of saved people who come to church and they don't realize that they're capable of turning their back on God. Each one of us, along with the disciples, should ask, Is it me? Is it me, Lord? Is it me? And in a very painful sense, the answer to that question of our betraying Jesus is yes. We may not betray him like Judas betrayed him, but like the other disciples, we betray him because of our weakness, because of our fear and because of our cowardice. It's incredible, really. Each and every one of us have sinned. And each and every one of those sins is an act of betrayal against Jesus. But this is where this is where the beauty of grace comes in. This is where the beauty of the gospel uh, is shown the brightest. Romans 5, 8 says, But God proves his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. And I'm not into trying to change what the Bible says, but if you'll allow me, I just want to change one word there. God proves his own love for us in this, that while we betrayed him, Christ died for us. That's what sin is. It's a betrayal against God's commands. We're betraying him. And even those who have betrayed Jesus can experience instant and total forgiveness through repentance and confession. When Peter realizes what he has done, he will weep bitterly over the terrible thing that he did. But then he's going to run to Jesus. In grace, Jesus, who paid for that sin, forgives Peter. And not only does he forgive him, but he He gives him a task to do in the kingdom of God. But repentance, repentance, that's the difference between the two kinds of betrayers, between Judas and between Peter. One repented, the other one didn't. One found forgiveness, the other one found guilt and condemnation. Let's take a quick look at verse 21 before we move on to the pronouncement of the Lord's Supper. Jesus makes one of the most profound and, I think, theologically important statements in the Bible. For the Son of Man will go, just as, as it is written about him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. In this verse, we can see on one hand that the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. That is, that Jesus must die to fulfill the scriptures. His death was predestined. It was preordained. The betrayal was part of the plan of God from the very beginning of time. Yet, on the other hand, the one who betrayed Jesus was pitied by Jesus. Even in the betrayal, Jesus loved Judas. And there's a tension in our text today. We see the divine, unchanging, sovereign, preordained work of God in ordering the events to take place exactly as they need to take place in order for his will to be worked out in the world exactly as it needs to be worked out. Yet, at the same time, we find Judas, who is free and morally responsible for his actions. Jesus will be betrayed and crucified according to God's predetermined will, but it in no way relieves Judas of his responsibility and guilt for his actions. So how do we reconcile this tension between the absolute sovereignty of God on one hand and human responsibility and free will on the other hand? The, more that I, the longer that I preach, the more comfortable I'm with three words. I don't know. I don't know how, to, and I don't know that they need to be reconciled. The Bible teaches that God is completely sovereign, and His will cannot be undone or uh, or, or uh, derailed. That's an absolute truth in the Scripture. But the Bible also says that we make we make decisions, and we are responsible for those decisions and those sins that we make. And so, I think they're both true. I don't think we have to reconcile them. I wouldn't reconcile friends, and I think that these two truths are friends but Jesus does say woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed it would have been better for him if he had not been born now Judas was condemned for the same exact reason that millions of people are still condemned today it's because he didn't repent It's because he didn't repent of his sins and he didn't believe on Jesus Christ. And so this morning, friends, here's the deal. If you have never been born again, like Judas, one day you'll wish that you'd never been born at all because the punishment is so great for betrayal of Jesus. Now let's look at the pronouncement of the Lord's Supper. The pronouncement of the Lord's Supper. It's in verses 22 through 26. And across the years, this has been called the, Lord's, the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, which is a Greek word that means thanksgiving or to give thanks, uh, communion, the Lord's Table. But regardless of whatever it's called, it inaugurates the new covenant that God made with his people through the true Passover lamb sacrificed for our sins, Jesus. You see, the death of Jesus It makes possible a new and greater covenant, delivering us not like the first covenant did, not from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery in our sins. Remember, the Passover feast was a memorial of the victory of God as he brought Israel out of Egypt and he gave them the law. And that law, that old covenant, was ratified with the blood of animal sacrifices. But this new covenant that God is making, This great new covenant is ratified in the blood of God's Son, Jesus Christ. The new covenant in his blood would do what the old covenant sacrifices could not do. It would permanently take away the sin and the guilt, and it would cleanse the heart and the conscience of every believer. We're not saved from our sins by participating in religious ceremonies. We're saved from our sins by trusting in in the blood of Jesus Christ, and that he is our Savior. This Lord's Supper was given to us to help us remember our dependence on Jesus and our need to trust Jesus in every aspect of our lives. There's a Jewish expert, his name's Dr. Arnold G. I think it's Frichtenbaum, but I, I don't know how to pronounce it, to be honest with you. And I was reading a book that he wrote, and he helped me understand about the order of the elements of the Passover and what they meant. He explained that there were four points during the feast where the one leading would hold up one of four glasses of wine, and each of those cups represented something important, and so he would hold the glass of wine, and he would explain something about the Passover celebration. The first cup was known as the cup of blessing, and they usually had a very long blessing that was associated with that cup. The second cup was the cup of deliverance. And it was to remind them that God had delivered them from the plagues. So it's sometimes called the cup of plagues. The third cup was the cup of redemption. That God redeemed them and he saved them from the slavery in Egypt. And the last one was the cup of praise. And it was to remind them of that renewed relationship that they had with God when he gave them the law on Mount Sinai. Each cup of wine represent promises that were made by God in Exodus chapter 6. And I believe that it was at the point of the third cup, the cup of redemption, that Jesus departs from his normal routine that he would have gone on through the rest of the meal. Now, we usually remember people for, uh, we want people to remember us for our lives, how we lived. But Jesus wants them to remember him for his death. Because the spiritual blessings that we receive from God, we receive them because of Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. And so as Jesus broke the bread, he said, Take it, this is my body. And later on, Peter would write, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. I believe that Jesus wanted them to remember that he carried their sins. That seems to be the effect that it took on Peter's life as he wrote down his letter. He remembered that it was Jesus' body that bore his sins, that his body was was beaten and mangled and torn, and he was wounded for the sins that he had. Jesus had no sins, but but Peter did, and Jesus in his body carried those sins and was forgiven. And I think that also it was to remind them not only that they were forgiven because of what the body of Christ had to endure on the cross, but they were also, that this bread also reminded them of the presence of Christ in their life. When Jesus would leave, he'd say, I am with you always. I am with you always. And the bread was a reminder. Every time they got together, every time they took the bread, it reminded them that their sins were forgiven and that Christ was with them. Now, Jesus isn't saying that the bread is literally his body. It's not, it doesn't magically become his body uh, because his actual body is in heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of God. So when we take the Lord's Supper and it's, we, say, we say the words that Jesus says, this is my body, we realize that that's not actually his body because we can't slice up his body and, and him be divided that way. He's whole, complete in heaven right now. And the same is true about the blood. It's not the actual blood of Jesus because that is in his body in heaven. Instead, both of these are symbols that remind us of the death of Christ and the extent to which he he went so that we could each be saved. So that's when Jesus takes the cup. And after giving thanks, it says he gave it to them and they all drank from it. They must not have had COVID back then. He said to them, this is my body of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And this is the third cup that I was telling you about before, the cup of redemption. And by drinking this cup, they were entering into a covenant with Jesus. He would wash their sins away by shedding his blood. The author of Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But Jesus is saying, my blood will wash away your sins. And as they drank it, they were symbolically applying the blood to their hearts and to their souls. And they were obtaining redemption by drinking from that cup. But it wasn't because they drank from it. It was because of the promise that Christ made that was attached to it. And that's the part where I now say eating the bread and drinking the cup is not a magic ritual. If you eat the bread and drink the cup, there's no guarantee that you're going to be saved. We're not saved by it. It's a reminder of the salvation that we already have. The elements are eaten as a memorial because of what Christ has done for us in the past and as a reminder of the power that he has now to continue to forgive us and to cause us to live a new life for him. And that's where Jesus ends the Passover meal. He concludes the Passover meal one cup early. There's still one cup left on the table. Jesus never touched it. And instead of drinking the final cup, which is the cup of praise, a reminder of their renewed relationship with God, Jesus instead says, Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He was waiting to drink that cup because it represented a time when he would return to gather his church and set up his final kingdom. And the relationship with God, that renewed relationship with God, would be completely restored. And then it says, finally, that they sang a closing hymn and headed out for the Mount of Olives. And that's where we're going to pick up next week. They're going to be out at the Mount of Olives. We're going to see the what happens out there. But before we end today, just, I want to mention a few thoughts You know, our words, our words are easily forgotten. But action imprints itself into our memory. And dramatic action deeply imprints itself into our memory. And as Jesus is using the Passover meal in a dramatic fashion, he is imprinting on the hearts and minds of his disciples something very important. And so what do we learn from this dramatic action? Well, I think first, and I didn't really... I didn't really dive into it too much because, honestly, I could do a whole sermon about this, but let me mention it here. The Passover is a family celebration. You get your whole family together because when you ate, in fact, to eat the Passover lamb, you had to have at least 10 people because the whole lamb had to be eaten before midnight. You had to eat the whole thing. couldn't leave any of it left over, and if you did, you had to burn it. So it was a big family event. It was a big deal. You get your whole family together for the Passover. But Jesus takes these men away from their families. He takes them away from their households and he says, instead, come have the Passover with me. And this is important because I think that Jesus is saying all those who believe on him, all those who have put their faith and trust in him alone, and those who share the supper together are now his new family. They're now his new family. And Jesus is teaching us something about Christian community and our need for one another through the Lord's Supper. That, that the blood of Jesus connects us more than the biological blood of our families. That that blood is, is thicker, it's more important than biological blood. It ties us together in a way that nothing else can. And so I think that one of the aspects of this is that we have a new family. We have a new family. And we're to love our family and encourage our family and lift up our family. But the other aspect I think this can draw us to is that we need to examine ourselves. Uh, I typically like to do the Lord's Supper in the middle of a worship service and not at the end because I think that sometimes whenever we have the Lord's Supper at the end of a worship service that we're more likely to examine our wristwatches than we are our hearts and our souls. And so, uh, and then other times we're more worried about being first in line at the restaurant than we are about looking at our life over the last week to find out if we betrayed Jesus or how we might betray him in the weeks to come. So reading about this event should shock us It should jolt us awake. We should take time and examine our lives and confess all the ways, both large and small, that we have betrayed Jesus, acknowledging our weakness and repenting. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Examine yourself so that you will not eat the supper in an unworthy manner. Because of our sin, we are all unworthy. We are all unworthy, and we don't realize how unworthy we are. But it's when we realize how unworthy we are that we realize the beauty of the gospel. That even though we are dirty and sinful, Christ has washed us clean. That though our sin be as scarlet, He makes it as white as snow. And even though we in ourselves are unworthy. Christ makes us worthy. And when we rest in him and in our hope is in him, and when we put our faith and trust in him, then we are made new. We're made new. We're forgiven. And we get a new life in him. And that's what the Lord's Supper reminds us of, is that each one of us is unworthy. Unworthy. On our own, we all need the body and blood of Christ. If there's ever going to be any hope for us at all, it's going to be through Christ. Judas ran from Christ and was condemned. Peter ran to Christ and found forgiveness. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Versailles. We would love it if you joined us in person. Our services are Sunday at 1045 a.m. and Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. We are located at 211 East Jasper Street in Versailles, Missouri. For more sermon recordings, visit our sermon page at fbcversales.com.